Happy Thanksgiving. We are delighted that you are with us. Hopefully you are coming out of your weekly food coma. And for those of you who remain committed to your goals of good dietary and healthy eating, congratulations, you are better than us. We want to welcome you as we discuss uh, together. Uh, hopefully you are curled up somewhere with friends and family nearby and enjoying how the seasons began to shift as we are now fully and wholly entrenched in one of our favorite seasons of them all, which is obviously the holiday season. Before we begin, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to welcome my friend Joey O and ask him the question that I know you all are asking, and that is how much fake veggie turkey did he eat, and is he a veggie, a tofurkey, or a special loaf? A special K loaf kind of guy. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll, we'll answer those questions. Father, thank you for a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you for families coming together. Thank you for what continues to be my favorite holiday of the year, a time where we celebrate uh, our giving thanks. Our giving thanks for what you have done in our lives and through our lives throughout this year are giving thanks for friends and for family, for the ties that unite us. And Lord, even as we give thanks, we realize that there are so many people that are not as lucky as we are. And so won't you touch their lives? Won't you touch their heart? Won't you fill them with your presence and your love? We pray in your name. Amen. Joey, tofurkey or special K-loaf? Actually, for me, it's neither. For me, it's dinner roast. We... Dinner roast! That's the other one. <laughs> we love our dinner roast, although dinner roast has gotten more and more expensive over the years. Yes. You can follow inflation prices based on the price of one thing of dinner roast. So, But yes, we love our dinner roast, and uh, that's what we eat in our family because none of us eat turkey. Dinner roast is now, by the way, more expensive than a turkey. So if you're yeah. trying to save money, it That's might so be a time, at least for one holiday of the year, to hang up that vegetarian lifestyle. And honestly, turkey is probably healthier than dinner roast. Too. I mean, I didn't want to say that, but yes, <laughs> it, it, it probably is less, you know, less uh, artificial stuff, less processed. It's not as processed. And for those of you who say, well, what about the environment? Turkey actually is, a, as far as animals go, a pretty sustainable uh, form of food, except obviously there's the whole thing that you have to kill something. Yeah. So there, there is that. <laughs> uh, how was your Thanksgiving, Joey? Oh, good, good. You know, um, I've, always, I've always loved Thanksgiving. Even as a child, I mean, of course, we... As children, we love getting gifts on Christmas. But there was something special about Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving was the time where we got together with our friends and extended family. Christmas was usually more immediate family, mm -hmm. but Thanksgiving was always a big meal with lots of people. And as a kid, I loved that. I always looked forward to that. And as an adult, I appreciate more because Thanksgiving, you get all the benefits of Christmas without all the pressure of gifts, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's, you know, you, you take that element of the hectic buying everybody and, and, you know, it's nice to give people things, people that you love things, but Chris Thanksgiving is you get together. There's no pressure of gifts. You just have fun with family and friends. And I, I always love Thanksgiving. By and large, my favorite holiday of the year. Mm. Um, and it's not even close. Now, mm. as a child, I also, I preferred Christmas, because let's face it, I like gifts. But I think there's something really refreshing about yeah. a holiday where there is very little expectation commercially. We haven't found a way 
to exploit the holiday commercially other than you know black friday which begins now on thursday afternoon yeah. uh, but other than that it seems like we have been able to create a wedge and a hedge around uh, a wedge with and a hedge around uh, the day and so i i think there's something really deeply spiritual about a day when you get together with those whom you love and you just exp uh, express your thanks mm. and if that's not enough this thursday presented a bevy of wonderful stuff uh, to share in front of a television set for those of you who like football. I mean, it is a, it is great food, family, friends, and football games. Um, and this year is was particularly special for me because I got up at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. to watch soccer games as the World <laughs> Cup is yes. now in full swing. So it's very exciting, just very, very, very exciting uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, day and so we we're glad to be back here though Saturday Saturday after Thanksgiving which I love don't you love Saturday after Thanksgiving because it's kind of for our church at least it's the kickoff of the holiday season mm -hmm. and so we want to remind you today and today only it is our traditional heritage singers concert yeah. which is I think one of the that and Veggie Links are two of the Loma Linda staples that you can count on that we will have Veggie Links and that the heritage singers will be at our church after Thanksgiving. Oh, I know that that in Loma Linda is one of the highlights of, of the Thanksgiving season is having the heritage singers. We have it circled on our calendar every year. And if for some reason we're traveling, visiting family or I know my daughter, my daughters are always disappointed that mm. we weren't able to attend the Heritage Singers concert. It's it's amazing time. And it just I mean, there's something Heritage Singers just speaks out Loma Linda Adventism. Mm. You know, it's just I love having yeah. them here. And it's it's great to have several of them who who are part of our community as well. So that's um, just love love the heritage singers yeah, and, well, and the ministry that they bring. Adore the heritage singers. Um, loved seeing them up north a couple couple months ago. At least some of their members that live up north, and uh, just glad to know that uh, some of their members uh, watch and admire this show. Mm -hmm. And we watch and admire your concerts <laughs> yes, every year. Do. So so the admiration is mutual. Okay, yeah. Joey. The lesson today seems to take a rather different different track because it's going to mm. deal with some objections. Now, you know, this whole quarter we've been talking about death, about life after death, about the resurrection, about the cross, about the hope uh, that is uh, the death uh, and resurrection of Christ for our lives. But today, today we, we go back uh, to something that we discussed uh, close to the beginning of the quarter, and that was simply this idea of conditional immortality versus inherent immortality. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about the Greco-Roman influences and the influence from neo, uh, from Platonic and Neoplatonic thought uh, in, that seeped into Christendom and switched it from a uh, Jewish religion to a more Greek-oriented uh, religion. But there are some passages mm -hmm. uh, that, that seem to hint at this idea of uh, in, uh, inherent immortality, and so the lesson I think does does a phenomenal job of teasing out some of them. Today we probably will only look at three, um, but the lesson, if you've read it this uh, this week, touches on a few more. So, oh, right. you're you're just throwing it back to me. <laughs> Fantastic, I love it. Let's talk then about probably the one that I hear about the most, which is. Uh, Strangely enough, it's located in a section of parables that Jesus tells. Mm -hmm. And like all parable stories, uh, you find the majority of them in Luke. Uh, Luke has a fantastical, a fantastic way of uh, leveraging these stories of, uh, a lot of them are uh, stories of popular wisdom and then puts places them in Jesus's mouth and, and then twists them or, or turns them a little. And that's, I think, the, the ingenuity that Jesus has as a as a master teacher. Mm -hmm. But then you have this story, right, which begins in chapter 16, verse 19, about mm -hmm. the rich man and Lazarus. And if you've ever had a conversation with anyone, mm -hmm. it's not too long before that story comes and says, well, what about Luke 16, 19? Mm -hmm. So what about it, Joey? I'm just going to volley that on to <laughs> you. 
and see what you have to think about uh, about uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting story because it 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 you have this conversation that happens behind the scenes that Jesus has with um with or God has with um this this rich man who dies who who does terrible things to it's just a really bad person right <laughs> the way that he treats Lazarus is and then and then and and then um he's wanting to he's wanting to be um to have had father Abraham have pity on him it's just a really interesting setup right and you sort of wonder, we can go into later, like, why Why do you think Jesus set it up this way? Why does he choose Abraham to be the spokesperson? Why not Jesus himself or God mm-hmm. or somebody else? We can go into that later. But um, it, does, it, it does seem to suggest the way that it's constructed, that it's not meant to be taken completely literally in every facet. And the, I think the lesson does a really good job mm-hmm. of pointing that out. Because... Um, if we take everything literally, it, it verges on the absurd, mm-hmm. right? That the fact that 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 um, that uh, hell or this place where he's being tortured um, exists in a plane that's um, that that is adjacent, so close to heaven that he can reach out and talk to yeah. heaven about, and and then also so close to earth that he could have conversations with earth, yeah. like it it doesn't really make sense, right? So you you know inherently as you're reading this story a lot of this is supposed to be taken metaphorically right. it's constructed in a way just so that a, a point can be communicated mm-hmm. and that really is at the heart of a lot of parables mm-hmm. we've talked about this before how parables were never meant to be taken completely literally in every aspect like the the parable of the sower is not meant to be a description of how you're supposed to sow seeds right right it's it's a description of how um, the gospel message can be taken in, in in human hearts and how people sometimes reject or accept them for various reasons. So it's 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 a description of of the gospel message, not a description of this is how you're supposed to go out and sow seeds, right? So in that way, we see that parables are not supposed to be taken completely literally in every facet of it. What we're supposed to find out is what is the message that's being portrayed here. And the message here is not really about how heaven and hell and earth and afterlife works. It's really about how we treat people on earth. Mm-hmm. And, 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 this is, and that's very clear at the end from, from the fact that this is what um, Abraham says. He says in verse 27, um, uh, the, the rich man says to, to Father Abraham, Then I, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. So the whole point is for them not to get this story, not to see hell as a reason why they want to avoid um, making these same mistakes that he, right. he did. The whole point is for them to say, you know what? The law and the God, the law and the prophets are enough to point you in the right mm-hmm. direction. Believe that. So if we take then the story and say, well, this story is about to show to warn people of hell and, 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 the, and the terrible torments of hell. That's really completely mm-hmm. missing the point that that Jesus was trying to make through mm-hmm. the mouth of, of the rich man and of Father Abraham. Right. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Friends, uh, it was great to join you. Um, thank you so much for, for viewing. We've got 36 <laughs> minutes, so we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about our favorite dinner roast recipes. Because, Joey, you just hit it out of the park. Um, yeah, I think I think there's very little to say. Uh, safe to linger on on something you said that I thought that I thought was really helpful. It might be helpful to, to our friends out there. Um, I made a really, really, really bad mistake a couple of years ago, and that is we were walking. Uh, we were at Disneyland. We're walking down it. I know you've seen them. Um, this. Uh, There'll be, it'll be a booth, and on the booth, uh, there'll be a chair, and across from the chair, there'll be a person sitting there with pen and pencils and crayons in hand, 
And if you pay enough money, the person will then sit you in front of them and you will be drawn. And I did this with my family and we we had a picture drawn. Um, Mm -hmm. And strangely enough, uh, that picture was in, th- and we call those caricatures, right, folks? Mm. And so the point of the caricature isn't to afford a description of who we are as people. <laughs> Rather, it is to highlight a particular um, characteristic that we have and then to play to playfully use it as hyperbole mm. in, in order to say to make some sort of satire commentary on who we are as, as human beings. Parables are caricatures. Wow. And so the if if I were to try and uh, board a plane and say, well, here's my here's my identification, um, I don't think they'd let me on uh, because they'd say, well, that's that's very good, but that's not you. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's that's the first thing I would say. And why do we know it's a caricature? Well, I think you mentioned several things, mm-hmm. right? From from the beginning of the story it already is telling you that this isn't supposed to, to be a re- an actual representation of life. Yeah. Verse 19 says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Okay, So just in, the, in that first sentence, you already have the author, you already have Luke, uh, through Jesus' mouth, making a point. And mm-hmm. the point that Jesus is trying to make is the economy of earth and the economy of the kingdom are completely different. Why mm-hmm. do we know that? Because Jesus doesn't cite the name of the rich man, and that's done yeah. purposefully, right? Uh, everybody knows the rich man's name. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the man who dresses in purple and has a wow. wonderful gait. Uh, but in the story, the man is a no-name, and the the one who matters is Lazarus. And mm. the point that he's trying to make, as wow. you said, is that the economy of the kingdom of heaven is different. And yeah. so it's less about what happens, and I love the way we, that, that you put it, it's less about what happens after you die mm. and more about the way that uh, we view each other in in our own uh, human-created systems and structures and the way the kingdom views views each other. So that's the first one. Then the second thing, I think, is Mm. um, you talked a little bit about kind of this porous... Uh, these porous barriers between uh, heaven and Hades and uh, and earth. Mm. And they're so porous in, in essence that it says, uh, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony. Mm. Um, what is that about? Is the man really, is, is, is Jesus really saying, look, the borders are so porous that Abraham can send Lazarus and with a dip, uh, with a finger dipped in water to cool the man's tongue? No. no. The point that he's trying to make is even in this situation of agony, mm. the man still hasn't learned his lesson. Mm. And why do we know that? Because he doesn't talk to Lazarus, mm-hmm. right? He talks to Abraham, the man, even in this position, even in this situation, as he is in Hades, still believes that other people, mm-hmm. other human beings are tools mm-hmm. that he can use to satisfy whatever needs he might have. Wow. And so the point that Jesus is trying to make isn't really about heaven or hell. It's, as you said, how do we treat each other? And more importantly, how do we view each other? Wow. Miguel, I spent all this time elaborately trying to describe all the reasons why we need to just view this parable as about just one point and then with one illustration you just hit it right on the head this is a caricature right it's 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 parables are caricatures made to make one point to exaggerate one point and i've never had a caricature drawn of me mostly because i'm afraid of what (laughs) they might exaggerate (laughs) but but Jesus does that here, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's some of these some of these constructions are bordering on the absurd, right? right? Like, really, is Lazarus going to go down there yeah. and dip water? Yeah. I mean, that's absurd, right? right. But the 
But the reason why he does this is because he wants to shock them out of their preconceptions of what life works, how life works, mm -hmm. right? For them, life works with rich, the rich and the powerful being blessed by God and deserving deserving all the goodness of the world because God is blessing them. And Lazarus is someone who doesn't, doesn't even deserve a name. Mm -hmm. And yet in this economy, like you pointed out, everything is reversed. Right. All the roles are reversed in this. And that is the point. Not heaven and torment and and in hell um not the fact that you can travel miraculously between heaven hell and earth in an instant that that is not the point the point is about really about about what we do with the knowledge that we have um and the knowledge that god gives us that society doesn't determine who is important and who is not right. it is god who determines that and in god's economy Someone mm. like Lazarus has just as much value, mm. and maybe in this instance, maybe even more mm. value than the rich man. And it, it, it almost seems then that the story ends on a prophetic note, right? Yeah. Uh, the primary accusation that will be leveled against Jesus in this pure and impure culture, and we talked about uh, cultures of the Jewish culture is a culture of uh, cleanliness and uncleanliness or holiness or where the lines between the holy and the profane are really clearly demar demarcated. In the story, the primary accusation of Jesus throughout the book of Luke is that he's a drunkard, uh, he's unholy, he's ritually unclean, he's a glutton. That's the accusation. Yeah. Um, and what we don't realize is that behind Jesus is uh, eating and drinking and uh, relating to uh, sinners and mm. tax collectors and Gentiles is this idea that the law, the Mosaic law and the, and the call of the prophets. So the Old Testament really is about uh, who we invite to our table and mm. how we, we interact in those relationships. And so the story then ends by saying, look, it's not going to matter, and this touches a little bit on, on what we talked about last week, if, if you all remember. It's not going to matter if Jesus himself raises from the dead. Um, people that are, that are still operating under this economy where uh, the rich and the wealthy exploit the poor aren't going to get it. And they're not going to get it because the witness of Scripture is that God is on the side of those who are dispossessed, that God is the champion for the weak and the powerless, that God is the voice for the voiceless. And so even if Jesus were to resurrect, uh, those who continue operating in that economy won't uh, won't appreciate that reality mm. uh, because they they don't appreciate the the overarching message of Scripture. Yeah, and it's Scripture that is upheld here, right? right? And it's ironic. It's so ironic that people have then taken this this parable, which is supposed to uphold Scripture and Scripture's role in in portraying and communicating the economy of God to humans and helping us to have those paradigm shifts in our mind. It's it's unfortunate that people have taken this story as a proof of of something as a of a different reason why we should need mm. we should follow God right that you know hell has often been used it was used in um, early American history as 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 a reason why people should follow God right mm -hmm. and they would go through very descriptive. Um, rants mm -hmm. about what hell is like and how hell is so terrible and that hell is breathing in your mm -hmm. on your back and and that's why you should follow God and yet that's exactly the opposite of mm -hmm. the point that Jesus is making mm -hmm. that's the message that the rich man wants to share he wants Lazarus mm -hmm. to share with his family members he wants Lazarus to preach that hell and brimstone fire and brimstone sermon to his family members so that they will turn their lives around and Jesus says no no because the law and the and the prophets are enough for them that's that's what they should lean on not the fear they should not follow Ooh. god because of the yes. fear of hell yes. but because of what 
the good news that that the law and the mm-hmm. and the prophets and, and the message of Christ shares with them. Mm-hmm. And we know that because right before this story, he Jesus says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So he's he's saying, even with the gospel being preached, the law and the God, the prophets have not changed. Their role is still very important. And that's part of the reason why he tells this parable is to uphold that message and say, this is so crucial. Pay attention to what I am saying here about how life works on earth because you don't need the hell and brimstone um, sermon in order to convince people mm-hmm. to be saved. Amen. Yeah, that's, I think that's, again, you, you hit it, you hit a home run. Um, there's a story that is told about uh, the early settlement of the Americas or the colonization, I should say, of the Americans, uh, of the Americas. So uh, for most of the continent, uh, the, the initial explorations were funded by the uh, Spanish crown. Mm. Um, and those were, were, uh, were underwritten with the understanding that uh, the conquistadors would bring not only uh, the wealth of the Americas back to Spain, but they would bring uh, to the Americas uh, the story of the gospel. Mm. And so it, it, it is said that in, in an island in the Caribbean, as uh, the message of the gospel was being preached uh, in, in a way that is very reminiscent of of what you just shared, right? These rants that are painful and descriptive. Um, the question then was asked by the inhabitants of the island, uh, are you going to be in heaven? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. And the very next day, uh, the inhabitants of that island committed mass suicide because they would rather be in hell uh, than, than to be in heaven with these people that had so misunderstood and misappropriated wow. the message of the gospel. And so I think we we fail to realize that that's what the story is about, as you said, at our own peril. Mm. So that's, uh, that's uh, the rich man and Lazarus, but the lesson doesn't just talk about, about that. The lesson uh, talks about several other passages. So what's your pleasure, Joey? Where do we go next? Hmm. I don't know. Should we go... Luke, Luke 23. Let's do it. Yeah. Luke 23, verse 43. Um, this, which I don't think Jesus meant to be a controversial statement when he told the thief on the cross this mm. statement. It was supposed to be, a, again, a, a statement filled with hope, and yet it's become um, uh, kind of a debated statement. What did, where does the comma fall mm-hmm. in this statement, right? Luke chapter 23. Let's start up in, uh, verse, uh, 39. Okay. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Mm. Now, when I read it, I paused after the today instead of <laughs> pausing before. So how do you take this passage, Miguel? I, I think I think you know there is there is grammatically the um, this this argument that the lesson makes that is that is I think very helpful, where he says truly I tell you today, mm-hmm. comma you will be with me in paradise and I think I think that's probably a closer reading of what the text actually means. Mm-hmm. But let's let's play devil's advocate for a while and say, no, no, no. What Jesus is actually saying is, truly, I tell you, comma, as it, as, as it appears in my new international mm-hmm. version, today you will be with me in paradise. 
there's a long tradition, I think, that we Christians have of saying the res the second coming starts the moment I cease to be. Mm. Right? Yeah. We talk about this all the time. We talk about the fact that the second coming is present and the reality of the second coming is present in everyone's life. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it be that you actually participate mm -hmm. in uh, the resurrection uh, and whether you participate in that moment where you're carried up into heaven, as Paul talks about, or uh, whether you perish and the next thing you know uh, is the voice of the trumpet and you being raised up. So I don't think Jesus is saying today, temporally, you will be in heaven because that you will be with me in paradise because Jesus isn't in paradise that day, is he? <laughs> no. um, there's, there's, there's still, you know, he has to be in the grave yeah. and the gospel account is clear. He's in the grave, yeah. comes out the next day, walks around for 40 days, and then he goes to paradise. So it, it Probably it, probably a closer reading would be, today you will be in paradise. But I think even if you take that reading, which I, I think is more problematic grammatically yeah. uh, with the comma after the I tell you, it still doesn't change uh, what we've been saying for at, at least 160 years of, of Adventist history, which is the second coming and the resurrection starts either the day Jesus comes or the day you stop breathing. Yeah, that's a great point. I I, never, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but that is so true that um, functionally, although not literally, but functionally, when we die, the next thing we know is that Jesus is coming, yeah. right? So functionally, for, for that man who died that day, <laughs> It's going to be like Jesus came that today. day. You know, he's going to be in heaven with him today. So functionally, functionally, that is absolutely true. That's a great point. And, and of course, like the lesson does a great job describing, yeah, um, Jesus isn't in heaven. So how could that, how could Jesus possibly be with the thief on the, unless Jesus had no idea what was going to happen, that he wasn't going to be in the tomb for the, I mean, that that seems a little bit ridiculous because Jesus has said to his right. disciples, you know, in three days, you know, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. So Jesus definitely had a knowledge of what was to come. He knew he was going to be in the grave. Why would he promise this man something that um, that he knows is not going to happen? Mm. Right. So it it does seem grammatically, like you pointed out, the lesson points out that the comma being afterwards, functionally, the message still stands, even if the comma is before that, you know, the man is going to, for him, it's going to feel like the same day. And then, and then of course, the fact that Jesus actually wasn't in heaven and he t tells Mary after he resurrects, I, I don't touch me because I don't cling ascended. to me. I haven't ascended to my father. So for all of those reasons, it seems fairly clear that in this passage, Jesus is not is not advocating that he's going that this man is going to go die and go to heaven and Jesus is going to be spending right. the the Sabbath with him in heaven. That's that's not actually what happened. And nobody believes that, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. No, I mean, the Apostles' Creed, which is the one thing that we all kind of subscribe to, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Even the Apostles' Creed, which our, breth our brethren, our, our sisters and brothers that believe in inherent immortality, they subscribe to the Apostles' Creed. And where is Jesus in the Apostles' Creed after he dies? He's not in heaven. Scripture says that he descends into hell. Now, what that means for us Adventists is the grave. What it means for them is literally he descends into hell to preach to... Uh, everyone that hasn't heard the gospel that, that has come before, regardless of what you think, yeah. there's not one Christian tradition that says that Jesus is in heaven at any point before, uh, before the ascension. Mm. And so even from that standpoint, as you, I think, are mentioning uh, accurately, it's impossible to to believe that this particular that to take this particular passage and to say, oh no no no, uh, inherent immortality. If 
the whole theology of inherent immortality is contingent in a, on a comma, uh, then we've got we've got some issues. <laughs> we do. Right? We have some with that major theological issues. position. We do. We have some major issues. So I, I love that point. So even if you take the First Peter three passage to say as saying that Jesus descended into hell to preach um, the the gospel to um, to to the demons and to the antediluvians or wh whatever group you think that he's preaching to, even if you take that mess that passage, which um, the le I think the lesson does a good job of describing why that doesn't actually make sense. But even if you ascribe to that, he's definitely not in heaven. Right. So for this, the sake of this passage, it doesn't hold together. It doesn't hold water with anyone. Yeah. Now you mentioned. Uh, the passage in first in first Peter chapter three, right? Yeah. And so let's let's look a little bit at that one, and then um, I I have a feeling, a strange feeling, uh, that uh, after that you'll take us to Revelation, and we'll declare victory, and we can move <laughs> on to have uh, some some more of the wonderful food that we've uh, that we've been partaking of this week. So first uh, Peter chapter three, uh, Joey, and it, this is I think. Peter's, uh, as, as most of, of the pastoral epistles, Peter's primary, and we have to ask the question about what the primary impetus of the author is mm. uh, when, when writing a book. And so Peter's primary uh, point is uh, to convey a message that is pastoral and hope-affirming yes. uh, to church. So... Let's uh, let's look at um, at this at this at this particular chapter. Uh, so, as you notice, First uh, Peter three, the whole context of it has to do with this idea of submission, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you have to read you have to read the idea of submission into the overall economy. Of of the text, mm. and once you once once you do that, then you have to ask the question: Well, what is what does it mean for Peter to preach uh, to those to the captives mm. in terms of submission? What how does the role? And I'll I'll throw it, I'll toss it to you, and then we'll we might have a conversation on that because I I wish the lesson would have lingered on that idea a bit more. What? How does the the overall picture of this particular of this particular passage, which has to do with Christian submission, how does that play in yeah. to this idea of Jesus preaching to those who are captive? Yeah, and I I, I love the sermon that Randy preached mm. last week, and about really from this passage, right. right, the first part of this passage of of mutual submission. Mm -hmm. The idea here is not just one party submitting to the other party. It is a mutual submission. And the whole point of that is verse eight, right? Finally, all of you live in harmony with one mm -hmm. another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because this, to this you were called, to that you may inherit a blessing. So the whole point of the mutual submission is not just submission for submission's sake or trying to create a hierarchy of, okay, so this person is more valuable than this person or this person should always be in charge of this person. The idea is the best way for us to get along is to submit to each other. And Randy did a great point in talking about that he even talks about in the that in the context of a master slave mm -hmm. relationship, right? Which you would think it's pretty obvious the slave should be submissive Submit to, to the, the master. master, but no, that's not it at all in the household codes. The the and that was in, in Timothy, but um, in the household hold codes, um, the 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 slave, um, the way that. Paul describes it. The slave is um is the the master also should be submissive to the slave mm -hmm. and treat him as a brother of Christ, which was completely revolutionary. Now coming back to Peter, Peter is saying a similar thing here um, that Paul said here there in First Timothy. Um, Finally, all of you live in harmony with mm -hmm. one another. So that's the context, right? So then he turns to the fact that some people are going to make you suffer. Mm -hmm. Like some people are going to attack you and make you suffer. So what should you, in, in that context, what should your response be? Right. And then he starts in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right. So he's saying, 
If you're doing good, most people aren't going to try to harm you. But even if someone is out there making you suffer for doing good, for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Another sermon that right. Randy preached right um, throughout the camp meeting series keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So the context here is people who speak terribly of you, you respond to them with gentleness mm. and respect, trying to show a Christ-like spirit Correct. to them. And then he describes what Christ did, right? It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ... This is what Christ did. Mm -hmm. He suffered for doing good, died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the spirit through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, in, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves. And so he goes into this whole thing about baptism and then ends with, who has gone into heaven and is at the at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers in submission. Again, submission in with submission to him. So what is he saying here? Well, the first thing I want to point out is nowhere in this passage does it say when Christ went and proclaimed this right. message, right? So it's not saying that Christ died and that he went and ended this, okay? So in this passage, at least, there is no indication of when. The second thing that he's saying here is, what, what is the nature of this preaching? And what is the goal of this preaching? And how, how does this preaching happen? And it does seem... Um, I, I was reading one commentary that makes the point that the spirit that a lot often oftentimes spirits um spirits uh spirits have to do with not so much human spirits but actually um non-human spirits unless there's a reason to believe i I kind of go back and forth on that, but the whole point is that the whole that Jesus in this context is trying to pre preach a message. To reach people, mm -hmm. right? Reach people that um, reach individuals that that are are sh and is showing with gentleness and kindness the same thing that we're supposed to do when people attack us and make us right. suffer, right? So in that context, it seems like it's not so much preaching to people who are dead because what is the redemption mm -hmm. in in preaching to people who are already dead, right? He is preaching. He, his life is supposed to be a message, message to those who are, who have rejected Christ and, and are, and, and is supposed to stand as a, as a witness that there is, that, that the way that they rejected is still right. Mm. And whether that is, that is to, to the demons or to those, the, the angels who have rejected Christ. Um, or whether that is to the people who are living on the earth who actually made Jesus suffer and die, regardless of whether that, that is either of those parties, his life and his way of dying and his way of living preaches that message mm -hmm. for him. So it doesn't literally mean that he has to go down to heaven, I mean, go down to hell to preach to people who have already died this message because his life is a standing testimony. Right of that message. That's my guess. It is a difficult passage, but that's that's how I read the passage. How do you read it? Lee? It's uh it's it's a difficult passage. So I think I think you've you've done a marvelous way of a, a job of untangling a ball of yarn that is tangled. Yeah. You and I preach, not as much as Randy, but we preach and uh, there's something that you do when when you want to you you don't throw in uh, just an anecdote there that is completely disconnected from the main point that you are trying to make. Yeah. You, it's just not good homiletics. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming Peter's a better preacher than than both you and 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 I am. 
Um, and I know this because he was able to convert 3,000 pe people with one sermon. <laughs> so pretty sure he's better than we are. And because I know he's better than we are, I know that he wouldn't violate the primary rule of homiletics, which is you keep making the same point in different ways because you're trying to drive mm -hmm. a particular premise. And the premise that he's trying to drive is life, is, the Christian life is about, as you, I think, so articulately stated, mutual submission. Mm -hmm. So then you have to ask the question, what does the mutual submission, how does that play a particular role? Let's go to let's go to the passage that is that is problematic and read it again, keeping the idea of submission that you uh, that you outlined for us. Um, for Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Mm. So. Peter, again, is making this, this case that Jesus' submissive obedience was the mechanism that was used in order to yeah. make us righteous, yeah. and that that obedience might have cost him in the flesh. And remember, Scripture is chock full of this dualism between body and spirit, body and spirit. And in Scripture, mm. it's this idea of body and spirit has to do with our life before uh, meeting and encountering mm. Christ vis-a-vis -vis our life after. So Jesus rejecting and being put to death in the body mm. is now risen in the spirit. Mm. That process occurs to submission, through submission. Now, if you're reading it, and um, I would love, love to have some time, and you uh, mentioned it very briefly, to go through the Gospel of e uh, the Gospel, the, uh, the Book of Enoch, which uh, has, which might, uh, and some scholars might have said, influences the way that this particular argument is being constructed. Yeah. In the Gospel of Enoch, there are uh, beings who are imprisoned, there are uh, the watchers, uh, Enoch calls them, are imprisoned. And so that might be at the at the back of the author's mind. Mm -hmm. But even if you haven't read Enoch or you don't know the first thing about Enoch, the whole point of the gospel and the presentation of the gospel is, I have come to set the captives free. This yeah. is Jesus's messianic manifesto. He doesn't literally mean that in his ministry, you're going to break people out of jail. It's this mm -hmm. idea of through submission to him, you experience freedom. It's, mm -hmm. again, one of these beautiful paradoxes that is being utilized. And so I think if you're looking at submission, Peter is trying to say, Christ, through submission, was being put to death in the spirit, mm. in the flesh, so that he may live in the spirit. Yeah. Likewise, that example, that act of death and resurrection is the tool by which you, a captive, you human being, a yeah. captive, might, might also be put to death in the body in order to be risen in the spirit. So it is a complicated passage. It is a passage that is using language and ideas that would have been readily available to them, uh, such as this, this concept of the watchers. But it's a passage that is actually talking about, once again, the same thing uh, that our passage in Luke was talking mm -hmm. about, right? Interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. How do we treat each other uh, bearing the scent of Christ. And what that means is how do we, as, as you've said, how do we advocate mutual submission? Yeah. And that really, I love how you brought us back to that because that really is the point of the passage. The pa point of the passage is not to elucidate or give a, a very dis descriptive, um, account of what happens after we die. Again, very similar to the Luke mm -hmm. passage, right? The parable in Luke chapter 16. It is about how do we re respond to people who are causing us to suffer, right? And, and Peter's whole point is even for them, even those people who are attacking us, like Christ did for us who caused him to suffer, show that kind of submission and love to them and care for them like Christ did for us. And so that then leads us in the last 90 seconds to the other passage that is used, the passage that we know well mm -hmm. in Revelation, right? Yeah. The soul and the blood, well, the soul or the blood, depending on depending on your reading of the Greek, of the martyrs is, is crying out much in the same way that Abel's blood cries out mm -hmm. in the book of Genesis, how long, O oh Lord? 
Uh, what I find really fascinating is one of the most widely held ideas, and I'll just say this about that passage, and then maybe in 30 seconds you can tell us uh, some closing thoughts about that uh, uh, that you have about that Revelation passage. But the one widely held idea about Revelation that scholars, both Adventists and non-Adventists, agree on is that in order to have healthy readings of that particular book, you take everything figuratively, unless it must be taken literally. That yeah. is the one book where you flip that uh, exegetical and hermeneutical premise of everything is literal unless it, it can be taken figuratively. And you say, because it's a book drenched in symbols, you take everything figuratively unless you need to take it literally. I find it fascinating that we all agree, every scholar of all different ilks agrees on that particular uh, premise, and yet you want to suspend that premise for that particular for that one uh, for that one sentence in in the book. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Because because of the genre of literature, it is right. Correct. It's apocalyptic literature, which is poetic. It's meant to be. It's written in that way. And if you, if you read, if any, if you spend even five minutes in the Book of Revelation, you can see yes, most of this is symbolic. There are no um, beasts circling right. the, the globe this is not happening so it is it is very clearly a poetic book so it should be taken with that in mind yeah. well friends there you have it um we are um, prisoners of time uh and so it's our time is up joey uh why don't you pray for us as we conclude our good and gracious god sometimes because we're so eager for you to return, we get a little bit obsessed with what will happen after we die, what will happen when you will be coming back. But really the heart of the message of scripture is not so much about um, that we should just be focused on what we're gonna do or when you're gonna do things in the future, but how that future, that future reality affects us in the present. So Lord, help us to carry your hope in our hearts, in the present, so that today we can treat each other with submission, kindness, and love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And although we cannot answer the question that is uttered from the altar, as the blood of the martyrs cries out, how long? We can answer the question, how long until we will see you again? That's exactly one week, same time, same place. Happy Sabbath and have a wonderful rest of your week.